The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer will retire. Breyer is 83 years old and he has resisted calls to retire from liberals who want President Joe Biden to have a Supreme Court nomination slot that he can use this year. Apparently, Breyer has decided uh, to move forward with that retirement now, and it sets up a political battle here for President Biden, who will have the opportunity to nominate a Supreme Court justice as a result. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome back and good afternoon. I'm Ed Morrissey from HotAir.com. Filling in for Drew today, taking your calls at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Big news today. We've got a great show, by the way, lined up for you. We've got all sorts of great topics that are going to be coming up uh, in this hour and the next three hours. So you'll want to be here for the entire time. But the big topic today, of course, is the news that uh, Justice Stephen Breyer will be re- retiring from the court. He's been on the court for 27 years. Uh, the second longest run, uh, only only Justice Clarence Thomas has been on there for a longer period of time of the current justices uh, who are serving. And while this is usually, you know, anytime a Supreme Court justice retires, anytime you have to have a replacement nominated, it's always big news. There's tons of politics around it. This time, probably I'll dial down a little bit less for a couple of different reasons. We're going to talk about that right now with Thomas Jipping. He's a senior legal fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. And before that, he served for 15 years on the staff of U.S. Senator Orrin Hatch, one of the grand gentlemen of the Senate, including several as his chief counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee. He has developed a national reputation among both liberals and conservatives as an expert in the federal judiciary and, in particular, the appointment of federal judges. Uh, Thomas, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. You know, I kind of miss uh, Senator Orrin Hatch, especially on Twitter. I, he was he was maybe the, he was maybe the, the 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 person in the Senate who most grasped the sort of the ridiculousness of Twitter and the and the joy you could derive out of that ridiculousness. Well, you know, he he had fun doing that. He was very interested in technology. Uh, he was actually the the chairman of the Republican High Tech Task Force in the Senate, and he had great staff who were very creative and uh, you know got a lot of I think positive attention to issues and um, I know that he enjoyed that very much. Well, I, I, I'm glad that he did because he, he brought enjoyment to a lot of people. And of course, he was always sort of the in the mix when it came to um, court appointments, especially, uh, especially for the Supreme Court. And he was sort of I wouldn't call him a moderating factor by any, by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, he 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 was a committed uh, conservative when it came to uh, you know judicial restraint and those those types of things. But in terms of how the process worked, I, he was I, I I believe he was more of a facilitator than anything else. And I think that that's what is going to end up being lacking in this process as, yeah. as, as has been for a while. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about how you approach that and how you see that relating to what's going to happen in the next few days here. I, I think your observation is absolutely correct. He, he was, of course, he was first elected in 1976 when there were only 38 Republicans in the Senate, not even enough to filibuster or anything. So he had a right. kind of a, a larger perspective, an institutional perspective, uh, that that where he resisted getting into the you know the dirty sort of ad hominem kind of attacks and this sort of thing, uh, and he was also active in in working across the aisle with Democrats, 
So, you know, he he wanted a, a, a more civil process, one that respected the president's power to appoint judges while still drawing some very important principled lines uh, about what judges are supposed to do in our system of government. So, and I think you're right, that, that sort of balance is, is lacking today. It's much more of a, you know, take the gloves off, purely partisan uh, process, and I think that's right. unfortunate. It is unfortunate because I think there's a couple of different interests here, and I've I've felt very strongly about this, and I think it was, I think it's probably at least close to the way that Senator Hatch uh, approached this. One is that elections matter, and that presidents really should be given the benefit of the doubt for their nominations, for their nominees, I should say. Um, and um, and the second is that the Senate has a a positive duty to advise and consent, uh, but within the scope of understanding that those elections do matter, too. And, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the Constitution gives the power to appoint judges to the president, not to the Senate. The Senate is a check on the president's power. America's founders thought it would discourage the appointment of what they called unfit characters, uh, but they also thought that there ought to be strong reasons for opposing a nominee. Uh, this idea of, as, as really started with the Trump administration, where... Uh, a majority of Democrats just simply automatically opposed most of Trump's nominees. That had never happened before in American history, and I'm afraid that it might characterize the process going forward. Well, I think so, too. And actually, I, I would say that this, as you well know, this actually goes back at least 20 years. If you want to get back to, you know, Miguel Estrada, for instance, in, in, the, in the Bush administration, and there's been a lot of tit-for-tat between the two parties ever since. And this is part of the reason why the filibuster, you had the nuclear option with the filibuster, is, is that this has really become a blood sport over the last generation or so. And, and I think that, at least I'd hope at this point in time, and certainly we're going to pray for this, that this is an opportunity perhaps to dial this down a bit and to restore a little bit of comedy uh, to this process. Because in this particular instance, you have a couple of you have a couple of um, uh, factors that are working in that favor. First off, uh, Justice Breyer is retiring. You know, very clearly he was under a lot of pressure to retire, but he did it on his own. Um, and this is not going to affect the balance of, of, of the court. So you, you sort of have that pressure off. And you're in a, in a position here where you're not even close to a presidential election. This is the time, this is a time, or it should be a pretty good time, for people to take a deep breath and look for a good candidate, not not a um, you know not a partisan nomination, but also not a partisan confirmation process either. I, I think I think you're right about that. Um, I, I I was not surprised that uh, Justice Breyer chose to to retire this year instead of last year because of course last year these far left groups were screaming at him to step down. If I were him, I would say you know you're you're not going to tell me when to retire. And he did that on his own terms. I, I agree with you. It's not going to change the balance of the court. What will happen, though, the far left has a list of really extreme, politically active type nominees, and they want Biden to pick one of them. And so the, you know, they're going to use this as kind of a litmus test for the president to see whether He's going to stay within the, the well-qualified mainstream or is going to you know, dip 
into the the far left well and uh, and pick someone who's more of a firebrand and kind of a a revolutionary. So um, we'll see. President Biden, when he was campaigning in 2020, said he would appoint a black woman. Right. Uh, I thought that I thought that was kind of an unfortunate promise because it puts too much attention, I think, on demographics. Uh, and, and we'll see, you know, what that short list looks like. We are speaking with Thomas Jipping, Senior Legal Fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation, taking your calls at 888-914-9149. Yeah, I think, I think that's unfortunate, too, because, uh, I mean, certainly that's, uh, we understand why, you know, politically why that is, culturally why that is, you know, and there's something to be said about representation. Um, however, I think when you make that promise right up front, and the White House today, uh, I believe it was Jen Psaki came out and said he plans to honor that that promise with this nomination. So that's what we are going to see. Um, I think what it does is it, boil, it, it does a disservice to the eventual nominee. I mean, there are certainly well-qualified um, black women on uh, on the court or even outside the court. You don't have to be a judge to be nominated for this position. Elena Kagan, for instance, was not. Um, but, you know, Katenji Brown-Jackson is one of the names that's being um, tossed around. Leander Kruger, who's over in, uh, on the California Supreme Court, I believe. Uh, a couple of names that are being tossed around for this. It certainly would be qualified in terms of historical qualifications for these nominations and maybe would have preferred to do it without that sort of baggage on them. I, th- I think that's true. I-, I think I'll disagree with you just a bit with the notion of representation. I think it's very actually very dangerous to talk about our courts as well. Oh, no, I agree, I agree with you on this. I, I do agree with you. I'm okay. not going to let you finish it, but I just want to say that I, I, I threw that out there as an argument that's coming from, you know, Joe Biden, from his, okay, from yeah, his allies. Did, yeah, She did say that, and I, I think that, too, is, that's a very dangerous idea that somehow uh, different groups have to be represented on the Supreme Court. The left does talk about that, but I think it's a very dangerous idea. Um, and the names that you talked about, I think Judge Jackson is probably the leading candidate. He appointed, Biden appointed her uh, last year to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, the same court that Clarence Thomas, uh, John Roberts came from. Um, and, she, you know, she, she actually clerked for Justice Breyer uh, and, and is very experienced. I, I think that this process, I, or I hope, that people will focus not on race and sex and that kind of thing, focus on the kind of judge that our system of government needs. The the conflict over judicial appointments has long been a conflict between two radically different ideas of what judges are supposed to do. Right. Uh, Are judges supposed to solve political problems and reach desired results the way politicians do? Or are they supposed to impartially apply the law to come to settle legal disputes, at wh- however the law requires, you know, and these are two radically. You know, the fr- the first of those two gave us Roe versus Wade. The second, hopefully, will overrule Roe versus Wade. So it's very, very different approaches, and that's where our attention should be focused. That's where we have to really look at and appreciate our system of government, and and know that that it was designed a certain way. And the judge's role is part of that design, and that's really what we should focus on. Agreed. And, and we're actually um, going to talk about a case uh, that has that context later on in the show, the um, Sackett v. EPA, which is coming up to the Supreme Court a second time 
Uh, we just found this out, I think, just a couple of days ago. We're going to be talking with um, uh, an attorney from the Pacific Legal Foundation about that case. And that's also, I mean, that's also part of this mix is, is you know, what the, what the role of the federal government is and the Supreme Court's uh, role in, in putting, you know, enforcing those checks and balances as well right. through, through the court process. Absolutely. And this is, this is definitely been the conflict for the last, at least the last generation of this as, as these nominations have gotten more and more politicized. But in part, that's a result of the judicial activism that that has preceded it, right? I mean, because this has become a political, uh, what's the best word to put this? It's become a, a political spoil, if you will, rather what, than but, rather than nominating people who are just qualified to to judge uh, cases based on the Constitution. Well, I think for the first 150 years of American history, there was a consensus about the very modest role that judges are supposed to play. They're supposed to hand to settle specific legal disputes by impartially applying the law. Right. That's all, right? And, and as a result, there were very few conflicts over uh, judicial nominees. There was, you know, one here and one there. Uh, and then, beginning in the 1930s, the idea of what we want judges to do changed radically, uh, where people wanted the judiciary to be much more powerful than it is supposed to be. Well, of course then. Uh, conflict began because there was so much more at stake in every choice for the Supreme Court. And today, I mean, it's, a, it's all out warfare, but that's because the, the, the power that judges wield today uh, is, is, would be unrecognizable to America's founders. If, they were, if judges did what they were designed to do, uh, I probably wouldn't have a job because, you know, there wouldn't be any judicial appointment <laughs> conflicts to study, but, um, the, but the entire process would be much more stable, uh, much more appropriate, and it's only because uh, we are looking to judges to settle things that we, the people, should be settling through our elected representatives that we have this kind of conflict today. We're speaking with Thomas Jipping, Senior Legal Fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Heritage.org is where you can find the Heritage Foundation. Let's talk a little bit about the process because this is a little unusual. Normally, uh, Supreme Court justices will announce their retirements at the end of a term uh, and, and give Congress you know, a, a few weeks during the summer to, to review a, a nominee's background and then hold hearings in late August, early September. That's usually the model here. Uh, Justice Breyer is, is saying that he's going to fill out the rest of this term and he'll continue to serve if there's no confirmed nominee uh, by the time the next term rolls around. Presumably that that's not going to be an issue. This is a little unusual to have it happen right now. It's not, uh, it doesn't preclude the Senate taking up a confirmation hearing while he's finishing up this term though, right? That, no, that's correct. I, there's no standard or prescribed way that the process is supposed to play out. There have been a few instances. I, I recall Chief Justice Warren Berger, for example, made an announcement at the beginning of the year that he retired, a public announcement. Uh, it is more typical to wait for a public announcement. The key is to let the administration know, at least privately, uh, in, in advance to give them opportunity uh, to prepare for uh, 
uh, a replacement and to have the process run relatively smoothly. The last point you made, I think, is a very interesting one. It is typical for justices to say, I will retire when my successor is confirmed, which means, you know, should, should there be problems, the justice would stay on for a little longer. But because Justice Breyer has announced this now, and because the term does not end until the end of June, the question is, will Democrats in the Senate take the opportunity uh, to, to go through the confirmation process, hold hearings on all of that, uh, this spring, before uh, the term actually ends? The Judiciary Committee, and I, I worked there on the committee staff for 15 years, uh, the, the Judiciary Committee uh, quite a few times has held hearings for nominees to future vacancies. So it's not uh, unheard of to actually hold hearings for a nominee when the, when the seat is not technically vacant. But that's not happened with Supreme Court nominees. Um, so uh, it may be the Democrats want to, want to, you know, get while the getting's good uh, and ahead, as far ahead of the fall elections as possible and try to get through this process so that as soon as the term is done, Justice Breyer can step aside and the new uh, justice get sworn in. Well, and I think there's some there's some other technical issues with this, maybe not even technical issues, um, other issues in terms of what's going on in this term. Because if Justice Breyer is saying, I will serve until, uh, my, until my replacement is confirmed, and he means that during this term, right, let's say there's a confirmation hearing in April and the person gets confirmed and that's when he's going to step down, that's going to disrupt uh, a number of cases that are... I, are I'm, I, I, I'm not a betting man, but I'm sure he does not mean that. Right, I'm sure I, I don't he think so either, yeah. To, to fill out the term, no one has suggested that, unlike, let's say, Justice Ginsburg, uh, Justice Breyer has any health problems or anything like that, and he he's a very active participant in all aspects of the court's work on every case, including oral arguments and opinion writing, and, and I'm sure with a couple of these blockbuster cases that are on the court's agenda, he will want to be here for their resolution. So um, I'm pretty sure he'll serve at least to the end of the term. I think the question is more for Senate Democrats if they want to uh, to get going on this now. Right. Um, and I think that depends on what they want to accomplish or think they can accomplish as far as legislation goes this spring. Because once that confirmation process starts for a Supreme Court nominee, it pretty much pushes everything else aside uh, for the duration of that process. So, this, you know, it's a lot of decisions, political and otherwise, that Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has to, uh, has to look at now. We're speaking with Thomas Jipping of the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org, and taking your calls at 888-914-9149. I did want to delve into the politics of this a little bit because I think, again, this is sort of an unusual confluence, or at least it shouldn't be unusual. It's maybe a return to what you know the status quo anti-usual was, which is that I don't think either party really benefits from a big meltdown. Um, I mean such as with Amy Coney Barrett in, in 2020, such as with, certainly with Brett Kavanaugh, but also with Neil Gorsuch, you know, all the drama that went around all of, all of that. Uh, you can make an argument that both parties thought that they saw a, 
a, an advantage in having a large-scale partisan knockdown dragout fight. I'm not sure that the politics right now dictate that for either party. I think that uh, if you take a look, and, and again, this is pure speculation. This is more about partisan politics, and I, you know, the, we're not talking about. Unfortunately, we're not talking about um, virtues at the moment, but simply incentives. The incentives here, I think, for Democrats and for Republicans are, are pretty much the same. I think both parties will see that they can probably benefit from a quieter, calmer process and that the, the type of uh, dialogue that typically has taken place in recent Supreme Court nominations, you'll see some of that, but probably not anywhere near the pitch that it was because I think Republicans see themselves as being in good position for the midterms, and I think Democrats feel the need to show that they can govern more substantially than they have for the past year. I, I would agree with that. I, I, in general, I, I don't think re Republicans have never gone after a Democratic Supreme Court nominee or, or a Democratic nominee for, for lower courts the way Democrats did against, let's say, Kavanaugh, Thomas, and some of these. Um, that's just not their style, so to speak, and their constituencies aren't demanding, you know, that they uh, prove their, you know, ferocity and all that sort of thing. Right. What you observed before, I think, is important. This will not change the balance of the court. There, there aren't some of these external, unusual circumstances, things like when Justice Scalia passed away or uh, Justice Barrett, you know, was replacing a liberal justice, this kind of thing. So I think, and, you know, the, the other factor, too, is that we have settled into a pattern. Uh, it began during the Trump administration, and it continued last year. Heritage is going to soon publish a report that I'm doing on Biden's first year judicial appointments. And, and we've settled into a pattern where the large majority of Republicans vote against the large majority of Biden nominees, uh, on average, about three-quarters of Biden nominees, Republican senators have opposed. So I think what you're going to see is probably a, a fairly straightforward uh, process culminated with an almost uh, party-line vote on the nomination. I think there were three Republican senators, Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who, for example, uh, Judge uh, uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, they voted for her for the, the U.S. Court of Appeals last year. And so if she's nominated, the attention would focus on them to see whether they will also support her for the Supreme Court. I, I'd say they are probably the short list of Republicans who conceivably might vote for her. Right. I think it'll, and, you know, otherwise. So the process, I think, will be fairly straightforward. The end result will be pretty partisan. And that'll be that. Um, and, and we'll see. I, I don't think that's a good pattern to have such a high degree of partisanship. Uh, I'd like to see the more attention focused on the individual nominee. And as I said before, the debate being whether they are the kind of judge that our system of government was designed to have. Absolutely. It's very well put. Thomas Jipping of the Heritage Foundation, thank you so much for being with us today. It's going to be very interesting watching this. I suspect that this is going to wrap a little sooner than um, than later, uh, because again, I think that the I think that the incentives here 
in place are for a quieter, uh, at least quieter process. Uh, be sure to go to heritage.org to find out more about what they're doing over at Heritage uh, Foundation and watch for Thomas Jipping's report on uh, Joe Biden's first year of judicial nominations. Coming up next, we're going to talk about a new gun control measure in San Jose with my friend Cam Edwards. I'm Ed Morrissey filling in for Drew Mariani. We'll be right back. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. Get the facts, get the faith. This is the Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. It's 30 minutes past the hour. I'm Ed Morrissey from HotAir.com, filling in for Drew today and welcoming my good friend Cam Edwards from BearingArms.com. Cam is the editor there at BearingArms.com and hosts the popular podcast Cam & Company that focuses on Second Amendment news and information. Cam's originally from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and he's worked in radio, television, and online media for over two decades he currently lives on a small farm with his family near Farmville, Virginia, and is a member of the Board of Citizens Committee to Keep and Bear Arms. And he's also my podcast, my fellow podcast uh, co-host on uh, each week. So, Cam, long time no talk. <laughs> right? It seems like it's just been mere minutes. since. We <laughs> 90 minutes. It was 90 minutes since the last <laughs> time we've talked, Cam. Um this is you're the you're the best person to talk about this story. We actually did talk about this one a little bit uh, earlier today. Uh, you know, there's a lot of attention being paid to a new ordinance in the city of San Jose, California, which has imposed now a requirement for people who uh, keep and uh, carry their uh, firearms of carrying a liability insurance and paying a a fee for the privilege to access that constitutional right. Now, that's a little difficult, perhaps, to follow. I suspect that courts are going to find it also difficult to follow. But maybe you can start off with what the what the, the city of San Jose actually did here. Yeah, so this is something that Mayor Sam Licardo has been pushing for a couple of years. Uh, and after the shooting at the, uh, uh, I believe it was the uh, Transportation Authority, um, Mayor Sam Licardo said, look, we're going to get this done here. So basically every legal gun owner in San Jose is now required to carry liability insurance uh, on their firearms, which is something that, uh, you know, isn't really offered, uh, frankly, by uh, most insurance companies. So that's problematic. Um, then there's the requirement that every legal gun owner in San Jose now has to pay an annual fee for the privilege of getting to keep a gun in their home. And that fee has to be paid to a private third party, some sort of nonprofit that will take all of those funds and then disperse them to various community groups. Now, the city says that, you know, this is because, uh, a, 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 you know, they have a vested interest in public safety, although I don't know why legal gun owners are expected to shoulder, uh, you know, an, an additional burden uh, for uh, providing for public safety when this is obviously something that is a concern for every resident in San Jose, and it's not like the legal gun owners are contributing to violent crime. Um, but this is, you know, ultimately, I think, an attempt by the powers that be in San Jose, A, to show that they have power over gun owners, 
to try to show that they have the authority to do this, uh, and, and, and B, to, you know, tell these citizens of San Jose that they're, quote-unquote, doing something uh, to address violent crime when they're continuing to engage in these sort of soft-on-crime policies that are returning violent offenders to the streets rather than putting them behind bars where they belong. You know, Cam, I mean, this is, it's almost sort of black letter law, right? I mean, you can't charge a fee to exercise a constitutional right. I mean, it would be somewhat mm-hmm. akin to saying, to saying, well, you can plead the Fifth Amendment, but that carries a $5,000 fine when you do that. I mean, it's, uh, or a $5,000 access fee. Uh, I mean, that, that, that is, it's supposed to be black letter constitutional law. And you can even go to uh, something a little softer, which is the abolition of poll taxes, which is, it's a very good, a very good development, right? But the yep. poll tax, was, poll tax was designed to to basically suppress votes in in certain areas uh, by requiring people to have enough money to pay to pay for the privilege of voting, and the Supreme Court quashed that. This to me is even more black letter because the right to keep and bear arms is actual explicit language in the Constitution. The right to vote is. Uh, is, is somewhat derivative, uh, although certainly recognized, but I mean, it's somewhat derivative of, of, of the language in the Constitution. In the Constitution, though, there is an explicit right to keep and bear arms, which can be regulated uh, as long as the regulation doesn't provide an undue burden on that. But to but to charge a fee to access it, uh, I'll give you another analogy, and maybe this one's a little bit more mm-hmm. closer to home for this uh, for this venue. It would be akin to saying, uh, you can go to church, but you have to you have to uh, donate a hundred dollars a week in order to go into the church of your choice and and worship uh, worship as you see fit. Absolutely. Or or think about this, Ed. Look, we've had uh, you know cities around the country like Kennesaw, Georgia, for example, since I believe the '80s has had an ordinance on the books that says every resident must own a gun. But there's no enforcement mechanism. What if Kennesaw, Georgia, were to pass a, a revised ordinance saying, uh, yeah, okay, so every resident must own a gun, and if you don't own a gun, we're going to require you to pay a fee for the privilege of continuing to live in this city. Uh, and, by the way, we're going to require you to carry additional insurance since we are concerned that you are more at risk of being the victim of a violent crime. I can't imagine that the courts would go for that. So why on earth would we expect that, uh, you know, the courts are going to uphold San Jose's uh, attempt to punish gun owners for exercising their Second Amendment rights? Uh, As you say, this is the government putting their thumb on the scales here uh, and and deciding that, uh, you know what, we don't really like people exercising this right. So we're going to do what we can to make it more expensive, to make it more of a burden. And, And keep in mind, there are criminal penalties that come along with this. So if you don't have your paperwork in order, you could face a misdemeanor fee. Uh, of a thousand dollars or a, a, a up to a year in jail or both so you know not only are they i think trying to uh, prevent people from exercising the right to keep and bear arms but they're making it legally dangerous to do so and we're speaking with cam edwards of bearingarms.com t- uh, taking your calls at 888-914-9149 you know we see a lot of this type of regulation that pops up and it's mostly perform performance art right i mean most of the time it's performance art now i'm not saying that san jose isn't going to try to enforce this they probably they probably will and as soon as they try to do it it's going to wind up in court but a lot of this is just really to get attention do you think that that's uh what the mayor of san jose is attempting to do with this is is to grab attention and do you think he's really serious about trying to enforce this 
Um, I think he's serious about trying to enforce it, but I also think that, you know, this, this look, this is a very uh, low-risk, high-reward uh, strategy for Sam Licardo. You know, the lawsuits have already been filed, but he's not going to have to pay a price, right? The, the lawsuits are against the city of San Jose. He's indemnified because he's acting in his official capacity as a mayor. Sure. You've already got uh, pro-gun control law firms that are uh, offering to defend the city pro bono. So, uh, you know, for, for as far as the gun control uh, activists are concerned, this really is a, a no-lose proposition. Even if the ordinance is struck down, they can, you know, point to this and, and show their base, look, we're, we're fighting for these, quote-unquote, common-sense gun safety regulations, um, I think it is a little bit about the attention, but I also think that the gun control lobby itself, they're losing ground and they know it and they are looking for a victory wherever they think they can find one in California, quite frankly, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is probably the most fertile ground that they have. Well, I want to get to the Ninth Circuit a little bit later on because there's a, a completely separate story about the Ninth Circuit and mm-hmm. it's in its, uh, uh, its uh, judicial temperament regarding uh, Second Amendment issues, which is absolutely hilarious. And we'll, we'll hold that one off for the break because that's a great way to, to wrap up this segment. People are going to very much enjoy that. But let's stay, let's stay on this. Is, is there, are there any other jurisdictions that have tried to do this that, that you're aware of? I mean, you're much more uh, in the midst of this than I am. Has this been tried before? Has it, uh, or is this really just an innovation in, in San Jose? You know, we've heard talk about, uh, you know, mandating insurance requirements. I'm not aware of any city that has tried to impose a fee simply for owning a gun. Um, But, you know, we are seeing, Ed, something very similar to this. Um, There is legislation that's been introduced in Georgia, which isn't going anywhere, but there's also a bill that's been introduced in Delaware that has already cleared the House. It's over in the uh, state Senate. And it would require every gun owner to go through a mandatory gun training class, including live fire training, uh, before they could own a firearm. So it's actually even more onerous than what San Jose is trying to do, uh, because it's going to be more expensive, it's going to be harder to actually get into that class. As you well know, it's hard to find ammunition right now. It Uh, is true, yes. I I think this is part of a trend where the gun control groups have said, okay, uh, the Supreme Court has said we can't ban handguns, the Supreme Court is getting ready to say... You've got a right to bear arms outside of the home, just like you've got a right to keep guns in the home. What can we do to push back against this? And I think that this is their strategy here. Let's make it as as hard as possible and as much of a burden on people as possible to simply own a firearm, and then we'll try to put up every barrier we can between them and their right to both keep and bear arms. Well, yes, and I think that this gets back to what we were talking about in the previous segment with uh, Thomas Chipping from Heritage Foundation, is that people have tried to move uh, into courts where where legislatures really should be working. Uh, this is, I guess you could call it lawfare. Um, <laughs> this is, it, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's, 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 not an, uh, it's not an atypical uh, method of advancing uh, causes in American politics, unfortunately. We're speaking with Cam Edwards from BearingArms.com. Let's go to Nancy in Sacramento because she's got a great question for you, Cam. Nancy, welcome to the show. Do we have Nancy on the line? Uh, looks like we may not have Nancy Can on the line. Can you hear me? Oh, there we go. Nancy, welcome to the show. <laughs> okay, sorry. don't know what happened there. Um, yeah, so I live in Sacramento, and there was a shooting by my house, and when I called the police, what they had indicated was that it was a bunch of teenagers 
and they have a big problem um, with the same situation where they're purchasing parts online, and then once they get all the parts, they put it together, and voila, they have a gun. And nothing is, it seems like it's really being done to stop that. And I'm just kind of wondering if uh, you have heard anything about the thing that's going on, because the cops said that they're having a big problem with this, that this is something major. Interesting. Well, Nancy, thanks for the call. I, I, and Cam, I mean, I, I've certainly heard of people uh, putting together uh, what's called ghost guns. I'm not sure if this is exactly the same issue, but um, but building your own guns is um, it's not unknown. Um, but it is if if the wrong people are doing it, obviously it can be a big it can be a big problem. It, it, it can be, and this is something that the Biden administration uh, has really been, you know, pressing hard on. They've actually got a rule that uh, they're working towards that would, in essence, require uh, unfinished gun parts to to be perceived as firearms and basically fall under federal gun laws. So let's say you were buying a uh, something that is an incomplete receiver, something that, you know, you have to actually finish it off yourself in order for it to become a firearm under federal law. The Biden administration wants to go ahead and consider that a gun uh, and make you go through a background check before you, you buy that. The, the, the problem with this uh, is that the technology is advancing to the point that it really is easy for virtually anybody uh, to build a firearm. And, and, and look, this is nothing new. Back in the 1950s, back in the 1940s, we had zip guns, right, which were you know right. home-built firearms that criminals were using. Then we had the quote-unquote Saturday night specials in the 1970s and the 1980s. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, criminals have always gone around the law in order to illegally acquire firearms, whether it is building their own, whether it's stealing them, whether it is using family or friends to buy guns for them. Um, the, the question I think that has to be asked here, though, is where are they getting the ammunition? Uh, you know, it, it is possible under federal law right now to purchase gun parts without going through a background check and, and assembling that firearm on your own. But in California, uh, a few years ago, they passed a law that required every purchaser of ammunition to go through a background check. So if, if gun control actually works, Ed, then it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter that, you know, uh, people are able to buy gun parts online and build their own gun without having to go through a background check because California law should prevent those individuals from accessing the single round of ammunition. Uh, so what that tells me is that maybe the, the gun laws aren't the answer, right? Maybe more legislation isn't actually going to address this problem. I think what we really need to be looking at is why are more teenagers feeling the need to arm themselves? And maybe that's what we need to be working on uh, addressing rather than hoping that you know, the, the umpteenth gun control law passed and approved in California is going to be the one that makes a difference. Well, right. I mean, I think the idea here is there's, there's especially in California, which is one of the most heavily regulated uh, states for uh, gun owners, there, there are ample mm -hmm. opportunities to prosecute people for illegal, illegal purchases, Ill, illegal, you know, illegal uh, ownership, illegal carry. Uh, and the question I think that has to be asked is when those, when those instances are discovered, are they being prosecuted firmly and fairly or are they being dismissed or, or, you know, pled down, um, released and, you know, with few consequences. And I think that's part of the issue that we're seeing in terms of the rise of violent crime, just in general, not even necessarily, um, uh, with, um, uh, you know, with, with related specifically to firearms. 
And I think that that's mm-hmm. part of a cultural issue that we still are, that has erupted in the last couple of years for various different reasons. And that I think people are only just now getting, wrapping their arms around. No, I think that's right. And I, I you know, one of the things that I, I really wish that we could do a better job of is separating, uh, you know, crime prevention from gun control. And, you know, I, I think the, the left has done a very good job of trying to conflate the two issues. And I think they're actually very separate. Um, you know, we've seen in Dallas, Texas, for instance, the last three months of last year, murders declined by almost 40 percent in Dallas, Texas. And that's after constitutional carry took effect. So you didn't need to have a permit to carry. Clearly, right. there were a lot more people who were carrying firearms in Dallas, Texas in the last three months of 2021 than there were in the first three months. And, and yet violent crime was a lot lower. So the idea that, well, if we just restrict people's right to keep and bear arms, that's going to make everybody safer, is not borne out by the statistics. It's not borne out by reality. And, and I would argue it actually ends up putting more people in jail behind bars where they don't need to be for the simple possessory crime, quote unquote, of keeping and bearing arms. I mean, we're seeing this play out right now in New York where you've got thousands of individuals uh, who are being arrested simply for the offense and, in New York punishable by years in prison. Right. And this is at a period of time, of course, when people are talking about unnecessary incarceration. Cam Edwards from BearingArms.com is with us. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to get back to the Ninth Circuit and a very fun opinion that dropped down. And Cam and I will walk you through that. I'm Ed Morrissey filling in for Drew Mariani. We'll be right back. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. Your Life Connected, The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. It's 50 minutes past the hour. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, filling in for Drew, taking your calls at 888-914-9149, talking to my good friend Cam Edwards of BearingArms.com. We're talking about the the new gun control law in San Jose that is destined to be struck down by a court someplace. Uh, more likely, it will have to be the Supreme Court because the Ninth Circuit is really Interestingly problematic when it comes to Second Amendment jurisprudence. Uh, The Supreme Court has had to reverse uh, a few things coming out of the Ninth Circuit, and one of the Ninth Circuit justices has finally had enough. (laughs) This is uh, Judge Lawrence Van Dyke, and uh, Kevin and I were talking about this earlier today, too. This was uh, a a, a very amusing uh, opinion written by Judge Lawrence Van Dyke in a a recent case uh, where a three-judge panel unanimously overturned a um, a, a uh, law or a you know, regulation on uh, on firearms, and then the judge did something that was very unusual. Cam, what did the judge do after after writing the <laughs> controlling opinion? What did this judge do? The judge not only wrote the controlling opinion, and he then turned around and wrote 
a potential dissenting opinion for his colleagues saying, listen, I, I know that you all are going to overturn this. The Ninth Circuit never uh, uh, finds gun control laws to be unconstitutional. But he also said, look, how we're deciding these cases are really silly. The standard of review that was uh, that's generally used in the Ninth Circuit is, is what's called intermediate scrutiny. So that's this vague, fuzzy, you know, legal middle ground here, where if the state of California can, or, or, or a political subdivision, uh, all they have to do is basically argue, hey, the reason why we put this gun law in place is because, you know, we've got a an interest in public safety, and so therefore the law should be constitutional. And the Ninth Circuit is, generally speaking, uh, more than happy to go along with that argument, even if they conclude that, yes, these regulations infringe on the rights of gun owners. And so, this particular case dealt with the closure of gun stores in Los Angeles County and Ventura County, California, last March and April uh, in the first round of COVID shutdowns. And, you know, these counties declared um, uh, gun stores to be non-essential businesses. In Ventura County's case, I believe the stores were closed for 48 days. And as Judge Van Dyke pointed out, you know, look, this is clearly impacting people's right to keep and bear arms. If you cannot legally acquire a firearm, then your rights are being denied to you. And so the county's argument said, well, this was temporary, it was an emergency, special circumstances, your rights don't disappear in an emergency. And Judge Van Dyke got this one right, but he also uh, said, look, we know that this is gonna get overturned if the uh, Ninth Circuit provides an en banc review. So I'm gonna go ahead and write their opinion for them. And he you know, laid out the argument as to why these gun store closures should have been okay. But in the footnotes, to that, uh, to that opinion, Ed, Van Dyke just eviscerated the, not just the anti-gun thinking, but really the, the, the anti-Second Amendment uh, uh, thinking in the Ninth Circuit that, that basically, again, views every gun control law imaginable uh, as a perfectly reasonable suggestion by the state of California or any of the cities uh, contained with that. You know, Cam, I have read a lot of different judicial opinions over the years. This is the first one that actually made me laugh out loud. It's actually very funny. And even if you're not, even if you're not particularly inclined to agree with Judge Lawrence Van Dyke in this case or any other, you really should read this just for the entertainment value in the footnotes. The the opinion that he writes is is sort of a reductio ad absurdum of uh, you know unbanked decisions coming out of the out of the Ninth Circuit. It actually goes even beyond the Second Amendment. This is about how judges are supposed to be interpreting the law in order to apply it fairly to to various cases. And and the argument that he's making in this is that uh, the Ninth Circuit uh, jurists are manipulating the law and manipulating the language in order to get the outcomes that they want, not necessarily the outcomes that the law dictates. And that's, I mean, just the the access to um, uh, access to the guns gun stores during the pandemic. We also had the same issue come up with access to worship spaces during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court got that one wrong twice before they finally got it right. Um, and, yeah. it, and it gets to that whole point about emergencies don't preclude the, con the, the Constitution. Uh, and especially when you don't even have a, a legislative um, um, action in place that would have enabled some of this, even beyond the constitutional issues there. And so Judge Lawrence Van Dyke has a, has a, um, has a very, very um, biting satirical look at this. And, and I think it actually applies much broadly than, than the Second Amendment, unfortunately, when it comes to some infringements on the Constitution. 
I think so. I mean, certainly with the Ninth Circuit, but it is particularly egregious, I think, when it comes to the Second Amendment. Uh, as Judge Van Dyke noted, since the Heller decision was decided by the Supreme Court, that was the case where the Supreme Court struck down D.C.'s ban on handguns and said, yep, the Second Amendment actually does protect an individual right, just like you all thought it did. Since then, the Ninth Circuit has weighed in on 50 different challenges to gun control laws, and they have upheld gun control laws in all 50 cases, Ed. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. There's not one law, and you and I have talked about some of these cases before where, uh, you know, look, the Second Amendment says we have the right to keep, we have the right to bear. Well, the Ninth Circuit has said that the Second Amendment does not protect the right to carry a concealed firearm uh, in a case called Peruta versus San Diego. And then last year, they ruled in a case called Young versus Hawaii that the Second Amendment does not protect the right to openly carry a firearm. So the second, you know, the Ninth Circuit has looked at the text of the Second Amendment and said, it actually doesn't protect the right to bear arms at all. I mean, that is how ridiculous and how egregious these decisions are. And I know that Judge Van Dyke is probably upset his colleagues. He's one of the newer members of the Ninth Circuit. But I got to tell you, I am I'm so thrilled that he's actually so vocally uh, engaged in pushing back against this mindset on the Ninth Circuit. Well, you can read more about this case at BearingArms.com. I actually wrote about it at Hot Air as well, but you can go over to BearingArms.com, read about it there. Cam follows all of this very, very carefully. He also has uh, Cam & Company, his uh, podcast, and that will be dropping today as well. Cam Edwards, thank you so much for being with us today. Always a pleasure, uh, multiple times a day, to be talking with you. <laughs> <laughs> Always love spending time with you, Ed. Thanks so much for the invite. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cam Edwards, BearingArms.com. And we're going to be rolling into the Chapel of Divine Mercy. But um, prior to that, first off, I, I want to just mention that Drew will be back tomorrow. So the Chapel of Divine Mercy will be live tomorrow. Uh, so you can look forward to that. I am very blessed to be able to be guest hosting and I know but I do know that people really really uh, look forward to the live Chapel of, of Divine Mercy just bear in mind that we're uh, we're praying for you just as we know that you're praying for us and we really really do appreciate that but um, in today's Chapel of Divine Mercy even though it's it's a pre-record Pope Francis is calling us today to engage in a day of prayer for peace for Ukraine um, and I think that this is a great opportunity for us to keep that prayer intention in mind as we uh, as we approach the chaplet. This is exactly the type of thing that uh, we should be asking uh, through divine mercy for. Uh, you know, pray for pray for peace in Ukraine. Pray pray for the people in Ukraine who are really just caught between all sorts of different global, regional, um, ethnic uh, forces and, and conflicts. Uh, this is the type of thing where prayer is really, I think, the most necessary. There, there are people in in Ukraine and around Ukraine, for that matter, too. I mean, there are people in on on the western side of Ukraine, on the eastern side of Ukraine, who are also just caught up in this, and would prefer nothing more than to to have peace um, in their life and, and in their environment. So, as the Holy Father is calling us today, just to ask that we keep that intention in mind. As we come up to the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, which is coming up next, I'm Ed Morrissey, filling in for Drew. Stay tuned. <laughs>